Thank you, Matt. Let us pray. Holy and gracious Father, speak to us this day. Lord, you tell us not to worry in your word, but we do. We worry so much. Lord, it's only when our eyes are fixed on you, only when our hearts are confident in you, that we begin not to worry. And so direct our gaze upon you and your Son. Send the Holy Spirit to guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, as I was going through the the passage from Matthew, I was going to preach a sermon on why we should not worry. I was going to talk about how most of our fear that we have in our heads, most of the time, it's, it's most of the time really in our imagination. I was even going to share a story about a man who was convinced that he had an a unexploded World War I bomb in his hand. You see, this man was from England, and he was digging in his backyard, and as he, op- as he was digging, he found this, ca- this device, and he picked it up, and he, as he looked at it and, and looked at it and examined it, he realized he had a bomb in his hand. And so he grabbed his mobile phone, bomb in one hand, mobile phone in the other. He calls the emergency, you know, in England, emergency, whatever the 911 is, and he starts talking to the operator, and, and they send police, they send um, army experts who could defuse the bomb. And the woman kept saying to him, you know, don't worry, don't worry. And his response was, you don't have a bomb in your hand. <laughs> well, soon as they were looking, the, the army officers were looking, they looked at the bomb and, and they realized it wasn't a bomb at all. It was a piece from a car that he just thought was a bomb in his hand. And so here this man was frightened. Frightened, frightened, frightened. Over what? Nothing. Just a cartridge. It wasn't real. But in his mind, it was real. And so often our fear is that way. We fear things that aren't even real or haven't even happened yet or or might not even happen. We've all been there. We've all done that. I was going to preach on that. I was going to talk about how foolish that is. And then as I was finishing my sermon yesterday, my daughter ran into the office and she slipped on the rug, and she bit down on her lip, and, you know, teeth on both sides of her lip, and and this is the first case where we've really seen blood, you know, (laughs) and lots of it. I know, get used to it, that's right. (laughs) All parents know that. And so Abby's crying, and Jamie's crying, and I'm crying, and we're trying not to cry. And then we realized that, no, her teeth didn't go all the way through the lip. It's both sides of the lip. We call the doctor, and we're ready to, you know, call 911 and everything else. And and we finally realized, we we settled her down. We we stopped the bleeding. We assessed everything. And once she was okay, we decided, well, I'll go and get popsicles at the store. (laughs) And I bought seven different boxes of them. I, I need a bigger freezer. It was obviously to comfort her, of course, right? Not me. And so we can say, though, and this is when it dawned on me, that it was just a bloody lip. 
I knew she was going to be okay. It wasn't more than that. But it didn't stop me from worrying. It didn't stop me from, from, from grabbing my imagination and thinking the worst. It didn't stop me from wondering, God, how, what are you doing here? You know, the truth is, is that whether it's real or not, worry has a way of seizing us. If we think we have a bomb in our hands, a simple word will not work. And if we do have a bomb in our hands, a simple word will definitely not work. Even more, Jesus' words about lilies sound fine and dandy, but as Dr. Rod Rosenblatt said, lilies don't have a mortgage. And so whether we know it or not, we are people who worry. And whether it's imaginative or real, that worry has a way of grabbing us and seizing us and completely overwhelming us. And so the question for us is, what do we do when we worry? What are we to do when, when we find ourselves like Eve, listening more to the serpent than to God, trusting the serpent more than God? What are we to do when we begin to act like those Gentiles who had no God at all? What are we to do when we have real worry, whether it's real or imaginative, and it's seizing us? What are we to do? That's the question for us every day. It's a question for us this day as well. Now, it's funny because many preachers will have many different answers. In fact, as they're looking up, there are all kinds of answers um, of what preachers tell you to do when you worry. And most of them will say, try to overcome it. Joel Osteen, for instance, will give you seven positive steps to take in order for you to have your best life now. And if that doesn't work, you can buy his second book, <laughs> which is Seven Steps to Become the Better You, or Leo Tolstoy. His suggestion is give it all away. Those things that trap you, give it all away. If your mortgage traps you, give it away. Then you'll find real freedom. Or you can turn to Pollyanna. She tells you to play the glad game. Be thankful for what you have. Then you will not worry. The preachers line up quick to address worry. They tell you to overcome it. But the problem is, these things don't work. And you know that. If Olstein's book actually worked, he wouldn't have to write a second one. <laughs> and when Tolstoy gave everything away, his life became miserable. And his family became miserable. And Pollyanna's suggestions only work in a Disney movie. Lilies do not have a mortgage. Now, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that these, we can't overcome our worry by hard work. That doesn't happen. Jesus knows that the more we try to work and overcome our worries it usually leads us down a path away from God because it's about us. Jesus knows that's how the devil works, just like the emperor in, in, with Anakin Skywalker for you Star Wars fans. Anakin, you, you do this. Anakin, you take care of it. Anakin, you do this. And leads him away from the real source of, I'm, I'm done with Star Wars, but I mean, you know what happens. The more we try to work and overcome our worries, 
the more we are drifted away from God. And so what is Jesus to do with us? <laughs> I mean, what does He do with us as we worry, whether it's real or fearful? What is He to do with us? Well, thankfully, Jesus has a message for us. And what He does in, in Matthew 6, which is so beautiful, is he, he asks five questions that have a way of, of kind of putting us back in perspective. These are simple questions, and you can give simple answers to them, but it has a way of grounding us. And so let me read to you from Matthew 6. Begin halfway on verse 25. So second half of verse 25. Jesus says, he asks the question, Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? And the answer is, well, yes. Okay. Then he says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. They don't have ATM machines. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And the answer is, yes. Now, the next one won't be yes, so don't get in this habit. Cause... <laughs> and then he says, who of you can worry, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And you go, well, none of us can. Okay, and then he keeps going, verse 28. And why do you worry about clothes? I don't know, but we do. And then he keeps going. See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow's thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Well, I guess he will, won't he? You see how these questions have a way of just, it, it sort of slows you down, it, it helps put you in perspective, say, you really are valuable to God. And in fact, in these questions, there's two things that jump out at me that I think are really important. Jesus says here, and then even a little farther, he, he uses the phrase, your heavenly Father. Now, why is this important, especially in the midst of worry? Why is it important that he says, your heavenly Father? Why doesn't he say, oh God who's sovereign in the heavens, or who God who's, who's powerful, oh God who's just? Why does he say your heavenly Father? Well, you already know the answer, right? Because that's a term that draws you to faith. It's a term that draws you to comfort. It's a term that if, if you have a good father, it makes your heart warm. And if you had a bad father, well, you know what a good father should be. And so when he says your heavenly father, you, it, it's, it's a relational term. It's a way of, of drawing you out. It's a way of giving you boldness, to, as the, the catechism tells us, to approach God with confidence. And so in the midst of worry, Jesus is saying to us, no, your, your heavenly Father, not His heavenly Father, not her heavenly Father, but your heavenly Father knows all that you need. Right? This is a good word. And why? Because Jesus knows that when things go bad, we stop seeing God as a Father, don't we? We begin, when things go bad, we begin to see God more like a judge, who might be punishing us because we've sinned. Anyone ever been there? <laughs> right? And if, if that was, but if that was true, if God is simply punishing us for our sin, and that's why our, our, our whole life is going screwy in one part of your life right now, then why doesn't he punish us always? It's not as though this week you're more of a sinner than last week. 
It's not as though God says, oh, that sin was really bad. Now I'm going to stick it to you. And if that's the case, why isn't he punishing every person on the block? And my neighbors are worse than me sometimes. <laughs> I said sometimes. <laughs> why aren't they getting punished more? But right, but the, the, the thinking happens is that when things go bad, we start worrying, and it must be because God in heaven, who's the judge, is punishing me or punishing you, withholding his hand from you because you're such a sinner. Really? But that's how we fall. And I think this is why in Isaiah, reading from Isaiah, which was so powerful when Jane was reading this, you have Zion who's saying, oh great, all the nations are shouting for joy because God's restoring them. And then Zion in verse 14 says, well, the Lord's forsaken me. The Lord is, has forgotten me. And what's God's reply? Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she might forget, of course she won't, but God says, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. You can't help but think of the cross. Christ engraving us on the palm of his hand. <laughs> right? But when things are worrying, we, we, we begin to think God can't be our father. We, he's a judge. What Jesus is saying, your heavenly father. If your earthly fathers buy seven brands of popsicles when you're upset, your heavenly father, he cares for you. He provides for you. You don't have to worry. He's there. And even more than that, he's not some miser who only wants to give you just enough. I mean, when, of our, when in our lives have we had just enough of one meal a day? Right? We have more than enough. God constantly, constantly gives us more than we need. Generously gives us more than just our needs. Gives us plenty of our wants. And thank God he doesn't give all of them, because some of our wants are downright sinful. But thank God he gives us plenty of our needs. As the Catechism tells us, I believe that God has made me and all creatures he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, spouse and child, land, animals, and all I have. He richly and daily provides me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this he does out of pure fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this, it's my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. This is most certainly true. And so in the midst of the disciples' worry, what does Jesus say? He goes, your heavenly father. <laughs> your heavenly father. And then I like, though, at the very end of his questioning, he uses the phrase, oh, you of little faith. I like that because who's he speaking to? It's his disciples. Someone once said that if you ever want to look good, just compare yourself to the disciples. 
<laughs> right? I mean, these are people who are with Jesus from the beginning. These are people who watched Jesus heal those who were sick. These are people who watched Jesus turn water into wine. These are people who watched Jesus feed the 5,000. If there's ever going to be a group of people on earth who will have no worry, it'd be the disciples. And how does Jesus describe them? Oh, you of little faith. I find great comfort in those words. He didn't say, oh, you have no faith. He said, you have little faith. Because Jesus understands that here's the best. These are the people who've, who've seen the most. And yet even these ones, even St. Peter, St. John, even these ones are little faith, have little faith. If someone says to you, knock off your worrying, you can overcome it, you respond by telling them, well, the disciples worried, you know. They worried, I will too. Playing the glad game doesn't work. Lilies don't have a mortgage. No, there's only one real antidote to worry. There's only one thing that we can actually do when it comes to worry. And that's verse 33, where Jesus says, Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Now, this is such an important phrase. The first word, seek, is, is extremely important. It's in the present tense. We as Christians don't live on last night's decisions. We as Christians don't live on two-week-ago decisions. We as Christians are present people, people in the present. We don't seek once. No, we seek. It's in the present tense. We seek and we keep on seeking. Right? We're active. We're in motion. I think one thing the world should say of Christians, we don't always do this, but what they should say of Christians is that we're constantly in motion. We're constantly moving. If we make a mistake, what happens? We confess our sins and move on. If we make a mistake, we change paths. Why? Because, well, God's forgiven us. We as free people don't need to be stuck in any place. We're free. We're forgiven. We're saved for eternity. The, the hymn writers talk about our chains falling off. We're free. So seek, as Jesus is saying. Seek, seek, seek. Move, move. But what are we to seek, Jesus? And that's where he says the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Well, what is that, of course? Because that's the million-dollar question. Well, that's nothing more than Jesus himself. The kingdom of God is the reign of God. The kingdom of God is not a location. The kingdom of God, the reign of God is a person. The kingdom of God, the reign of God is the reign of Jesus Christ. All throughout the gospel of Matthew, we hear about this reign of God, this kingdom of God. In Matthew 4, Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Or later in chapter 4, he says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Christ is near. He's near. Later in chapter 10, Jesus sent out his disciples saying, As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of God is near. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy. Drive out demons. Freely you have received the kingdom. Freely give it. 
48 times in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is nothing more than the divine action of God coming near to us, coming down to us, seeking us in the person of Jesus Christ. Even his name, Jesus, means God saves his people. That's what the kingdom of God is. And so when he says, seek the kingdom of God, seek the reign of God, seek Jesus. Seek the good news. Seek it today. Seek it tomorrow. Seek it every day of your life. Well, Jesus, where are we to find it? Where are we to seek this? And his reply would be, seek him where he's promised to be. Where is he promised to be? In the word. He's promised to be in, in the sacrament, baptism. He's promised, to be, he's promised to be at the table for you for the forgiveness of sin. He's promised to be even in, in the confession. And I love in our service, I love how I begin by saying, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you all your sins. And then your reply instantly is, wait, I have to, I have to get this out because I messed it up. But every Sunday when you say it, I say, I'm going to preach a sermon on it. And I even said today, I'm not going to preach a sermon on it, but I love it. I begin in the confession by saying, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I mean, that's a terrible statement. And if we stop there, it'd be terrible. But you as a congregation instantly finish the sentence. You say, but if we confess our sins, God who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you guys say that, that's the hope. I mean, I get to say, well, if you sin, you know, you're deceiving yourself if you don't confess it. That's law. You guys provide gospel. You guys are providing the good news. You're providing the promise. You're saying, oh, but if we confess our sins, God who's faithful and just will forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're speaking the hope of God. You're speaking promises back to me. You didn't even know you were doing it. So every Sunday you, you help me because <laughs> I'm ready to have despair and here you guys speak the word of promise back. So when Jesus said, seek the kingdom of God, seek Christ, seek the gospel, Seek the places where he's promised to be. Seek that. And when you seek that, what happens? You begin to no longer see God as this angry judge or this terrible taskmaster or this miser. Instead, you begin to see the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy and grace of God that bestows all good things upon us and then bestows it again upon us. And again, you begin into his word to see that he's not a terrible taskmaster. But you begin to see the hand of a father. You see a hand of a savior who's engraved you on the cross in the palm of his hand. What do you do when you're to worry? Seek the kingdom. It's the only thing that can overcome the doubt inside of you. And it's funny because when you do that, then the rest of that verse really jumps out at you. And all these things will be given to you as well. Well, the truth is God gives, it, gives all these things to the righteous and unrighteous. He reigns on the righteous and the unrighteous. But when you see his hand is good, what happens? you begin to see that he's been pouring it upon you the whole time and that he's been sustaining you every day of your life and that he will continue and that you have a loving father that cares for you today as much as he does tomorrow and the next day. And you go, of course he gives me all things. Of course. Because he's my heavenly father. 
Reformation, Reformation, Reformation. Do not be anxious about what you are to eat, drink, and wear. Now, in saying that, I know you will. Lilies don't have mortgages. However, your Heavenly Father knows this. Your Heavenly Father knows this. He knows all your needs. He's a loving Father who constantly gives us much more than we ever deserved. And so with these words today, He's inviting you to seek Jesus. Seek the gospel. Hear it again. Hear that your sins are forgiven so that you might see in the Father a loving Father who daily and richly and generously provides for you, His children. Have no fear, little flock. In Jesus' name, amen.